This morning I direct your attention to God's Word in the 11th chapter of Matthew. I'm going to read a, a short bit from the beginning of chapter 11 and then a paragraph at the end. I'd say to you that it's, it's a sort of a remarkable thing when I was deciding to use this material to preach to you, to realize that with four Gospels, and as you know, there are many parallel passages repeated in more than one of the Gospels, some, some passages with are appear in all four. It's rather surprising that when we hear the phrase of Jesus saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, if I just had a quiz and said, how many Gospels do you think that is written in out of the four? It's rather surprising that it's in only one. Something that Jesus said that is very familiar, and yet only Matthew records those words. I want to bring you some thoughts from this today. Matthew, first of all, I'm looking at verse 2 just a bit at the beginning because I want to remind you the context that this passage begins with the imprisonment of John the Baptist, who, of course, uh, has gotten in trouble with the authorities and uh, would have his head served up on a platter before too long. And John, surprisingly, remember, he's the great prophet, the last of the, the Old Testament prophets who pointed to Christ and said, here's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He now is in prison, and he's asking Jesus a basic question that's rather surprising. When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Very interesting. John's the one that said, He's the one. He'd already said that, and it got him in big trouble. But now he's asking a question. He probably was thinking, I didn't plan on being jailed for this. And uh, he's wondering himself in his human weakness. Is this really the Messiah? I thought it was. Well, if you go down, I'm not going to read the whole middle section of chapter 11, but we come down to verse 25 through the end is what I want to concentrate on today. And Jesus has responded to John's question and so on, but then he says this to the disciples with him. At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, that is, answers to the questions John was raising, from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And now these important words. Come. To me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, bring your light to this truth, even as you inspired these words through your Son. Speak to us today and lead us to Christ to find our needs satisfied in him. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you to picture a boy in the 1950s. Some of you can picture the 1950s. For some of you, that's hard to imagine. I was quite surprised having my hair cut 
earlier this week, and a very nice young lady, I would say she's maybe 40, who does my hair, and somehow our conversation sitting in the barber chair, the name, I mentioned the name of Joe Namath, and she said, who's Joe Namath? I was astonished that she didn't know the bonus baby of the New York Jets who shocked the football world some decades ago, and she, she is a woman with teenage children herself. I thought, how could that be? Well, picture a boy in the 1950s. One day he was riding homeward with his grandfather, driving Grandpa's Chrysler New Yorker. Some of you might remember that car. And Grandpa had to stop at a store and do an errand, and he said, I'll be in a few minutes. I won't be long. Don't worry. Just wait here. So the eight-year-old boy was waiting in the car, and it became a half an hour. Grandpa liked to talk. Being bored, the boy opened the glove compartment, sitting in the front seat. He was looking for a map or some booklet or something that he might read just to occupy his mind. What he found in the glove compartment was a Christian tract, Mennonite Tract Society, it said. There was a Bible verse on the tract that put forth the grand appeal of Matthew eleven. 29 and following there, 28 and 29. The verse, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those words instantly made a strong appeal to this eight-year-old boy. Uh, He wasn't a scholar. He really didn't know a lot of the Bible at that point in his life. But his heart was strangely and deeply touched by these words. It was as if there was sort of a powerful, otherworldly impression that seized hold of him. That invitation of Jesus, come to me. It almost seemed like it was written in neon lights on a Broadway theater marquee. As the boy thought about those words, they penetrated him with a power and a life-changing sense of great comfort and attraction 64 years ago. A few weeks later, this boy felt compelled to pray after a vacation Bible school and surrender himself, heart and mind and soul, and he came to Jesus Christ as his Savior and King. And as you might guess, I was the boy 64 years ago when I came to my Savior. Matthew 11 is, as I've said, the only place in our four Gospels where these remarkable words of Jesus in verses 28 and 29 are spoken, but they're so memorable and so significant. Come to me. Come to me. Spoken by Jesus as John, even the great prophet who had told people who Jesus would be, was wavering in his understanding of the whole thing. Jesus kept saying, Just come to me. Just come to me. I am the one the Father has appointed. Come to me. And he emphasized him being gentle and lowly, or the King James says meek and lowly. He didn't say come to me because I'm I'm the great new emperor of this age like Alexander the Great who will conquer the world with armies. He said come to me because I'm lowly. I'm gentle. I receive people with the power of God 
coming through me, but not with force, with accommodation to who they are and readiness to receive them. I believe that appeal of Jesus really is a banner that could be written over all of his gospel given to us in the Word of God. And one of the most important questions facing any human being is, have you heard that summons? And have you obeyed that summons? Have you come to Jesus Christ not only once in your life to say, Savior, Lord, King, but have you come again and again and again on a regular way? to this great one who is literally the revelation of God to us. Have you bowed yourself as I did 64 years ago before Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and of eternity? I have three subordinate questions that I think this text raises that I hope you can think about the answers to these questions today. The first question I state this way, do you recognize in yourself a need that only Christ can satisfy. Do you recognize in yourself a need that only Jesus Christ can satisfy? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He was promising serious relief from personal burdens here, from the toil and difficulty and exasperation of life. But that isn't only physical the weariness, and the being loaded down. Jesus wasn't just saying, I'll promise you a holiday weekend every now and then so you can kick back and not go to work and hopefully have a picnic in the backyard. Or I'll give you some weeks of vacation so maybe you can fly to Bermuda and lay on a warm ocean beach and get recovered from being hard at work. That's not really what he's talking about. There are many people today who, in a so-called 40-hour week, manage to work more like 50 and 60 hours, and I'm sure there are many of you that can identify with that. Getting tired, getting just worn out, not only with physical exertion, but with the exasperations we meet, the problems we have to solve in a modern society. The computer age adds at least 10 hours of exasperation to the working life I used to have. I find my wife is way beyond me in computers. I'm glad I have somebody close at hand. Last night we were working on a, a printer that just wouldn't cooperate. Well, the heavy burden that Jesus promised to take away here is not just caused by the stress of overwork. That's not it. He was speaking about spiritual and moral fatigue that he was ready to have an antidote to. You know, the Old Testament rabbis went way beyond just the Ten Commandments. Certainly they taught those, but they exegeted those having subpoints under every one of the commandments. And with all the other laws of Leviticus, the ceremonial laws and everything else, the rabbis actually came up with 614, exactly, subpoints of God's law, which a truly observant Jew ought to scrupulously be familiar with and obey. Jesus talked about that, what the Pharisees did, Matthew 23. He said, they tie up heavy burdens and put them on men's shoulders and are not willing to lift a finger to help them. He was against what we would call performance-based religion that said, obey the law, the law, the law, the law. 
because he knew that that only brought exasperation and frustration. Performance-based religion piles more weight on top of your existing guilt and frustration. The antidote that Jesus offered was this simple word, rest. A four-letter word, R-E-S-T. A fantastic word, a word that has an Old Testament background. When King David wrote about it in Matthew, I'm sorry, not Matthew, Psalm 55, David sighed there, a loud sigh, and he said, Oh, oh, that I had wings like a dove that I might fly away and rest. He had all the burdens of being a king in a disobedient people and in restless times. In Psalm 38, David wrote, My bones have no rest in them because of my sin. My bones are out of joint with God, and I feel the aching of it throughout my life, he was saying. Oh, that I could just fly away somewhere and escape and be at peace. David knew that rest, that four-letter word, needed forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation with a holy God at whom he was in difficulty. He was an opponent of God in many ways. And he wanted to be in a state of harmony with God, but he knew he was not. He needed peace within his very bones and rest that he would only find in God. St. Augustine prayed that prayer years later, centuries later, after David, and said, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Not in a vacation, not in a Memorial Day picnic. Being at rest with God. So the question is, do you find in yourself a need of that deep-seated rest and reconciliation with God? Jesus was saying, come to me and I'll found this for you. I'll begin this work in you. But second question the text, I think, raises is this. Do you realize the uniqueness of Christ to meet your need? That's really in verse 27 of our text when Jesus points himself out as the unique person appointed by the Father who has knowledge of the Father and can give that knowledge to those he chooses to reveal it. Do you realize the uniqueness of Christ to meet the need of rest for your soul. He said, come to me. Come to me and I will give you true rest. Nobody else can do it. And this comes from the question that John the Baptist was even asking. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth anyway? He's saying things that are utterly remarkable that nobody's ever said. Can we really trust him? John of all people was saying, Lord, are you really the one? And Jesus answered John's question here when he said, yes, indeed, I am the one. And I am the one that comes to make God the Father known, and I'm the only one who can make him known. Now, that kind of a claim is either true or it's the ravings of a madman. Now, most of you will, I think, immediately give thought if you're experienced in the Christian faith at all, what does coming to Christ mean? Well, it means coming to him to believe on him, that he is the only one sent from God, the only true revelation of God, the only one who can resolve our sin problem. Because he became sin for us, having none of his own. He saved us. 
it's somewhat old-fashioned language to hear so often today, but many people in my earlier life, and, and certainly people you've run into in the Christian faith, have asked the question, were you saved? When were you saved? I was saved in 1957, the year of Sputnik, I always remember, was my year of salvation. What's Sputnik? Come, come and see me later. We'll talk about that. Uh, coming to Christ means coming to his cross and to his sacrifice of his sinless self before God, paying the penalty that would incur the wrath of God otherwise and becoming saved, justified. That's the theological word for saved. Justified by the grace of God as a gift exercised through faith. Justification is the Bible's great word for what happens when Christ is recognized and owned in a life by faith. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, by faith we have been justified. It's the past act. A Christian says, it's happened to me. Maybe you can cite a date and maybe you can't. The date isn't so important. The important thing is, has it happened? Are you aware of it? I, I wasn't able to use the word justified at the age of eight, but I certainly found out that that's what happened to me when God was drawing me to himself. And I would agree that Matthew eleven twenty nine is not about justification alone, but about all the walk of a Christian from that point onward, after we are justified by grace through faith, our walk beside Jesus Christ in a recognition that we are in relationship to him every day and every hour that we go forward in this life. Unfortunately, I think there are genuinely saved, genuinely justified Christians who, who are confused, though, about the character of Christ. And I want you to see what this passage reveals about the character of the one who justifies us. He's not just the holy and righteous one who stands in our place on the cross. He is that. He deserves worship. He deserves adoration. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nations, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Christ deserves our worship. He is high above us. He is righteous where we are unrighteous. But Christians can make a mistake getting so lost in the majesty of Christ and the honor due to Christ that they come to him in choosing to walk with him. When Jesus says, come to me, we say, okay, Jesus, I'll come to you. And I think what you want me to do is fall on my face because you are so absolutely grand and holy that I shouldn't even be looking up at you from my place on the carpet. Well, there can be a mistake there. Jesus is, is worthy of all honor, worthy of all praise. He is great and high above us. But Jesus says, don't miss the fact that I am gentle and lowly. In other words, he's absolutely approachable. He can be touched with your infirmity. He understands your problem. He doesn't stand above you and say, I can't get it through my mind. Why in the world you can't obey me better or live better? Or, or why, are, why is your life still messed up? Why do you pray so little? Why do you worship so poorly? And they think, well, you know, I'm, I'm so out of adjustment with Jesus that all I can do is crawl on my face in his presence. Well, Jesus is counteracting that here. 
and giving us what you might call an MRI of his heart. I'm sure many of you have had an MRI or you know a family member who has. It's a specialized, expensive test. I've actually had one in the last couple of years myself where they look inside you. I can't explain how that happens, but they understand things happening within your body that don't reveal themselves to other kinds of tests. And it's as though Jesus here wants to give us an MRI of himself and his character and his heart and his mind and say, look, yes, I am the Savior who's going to go to the cross for you and save you so that you can be justified by grace before God and saved eternally. But think of this, I'm also your companion who's gentle and lowly and welcoming towards you. If you put a stethoscope on my heart, my heartbeat is for you. You remember the old gospel hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Maybe you think that's a trivial way to describe him, a friend. Well, he's so much more than that, of course. But he is a friend. He's the greatest friend you could possibly imagine having. I was at a men's seminar in which a speaker was emphasizing the fact that how it's relatively difficult, more so at least for most men, to make real friends as it is for women. Women are more relational. You're just wired differently, ladies, we've noticed. And you do have deep sharing with one another and sometimes deep trust in one another that men find it hard. We're supposed to be strong and invulnerable. And, uh, you know, if a man has a few really good friends in his life, most people will tell you that's rare. There are many men who have almost no real friends. I'm th I actually, as an occasion of that seminar, sat down and wrote my list. And I certainly have, I think, many friends. But I, I was thinking to myself now, look, who would really go to the limits for me? Who could I go to and say almost anything and not shock them and have them turn away from me? Who, if I was to be married again, and I have no such plans, but if I was, who would I go to to say, you, you please be my man of honor? I come up with three names. As a pastor of a big church, you'd think I'd have more friends than that, and I think I do, but three who are closer than a bro any brother. In fact, my only brother on this earth is, is we're not estranged, but we're not close. We live in different cities. We don't communicate a lot. But I've got three men who I could trust with just about anything in the world. Well, Jesus is saying here, I am your friend. I am, if you know me and you come to me in faith and you bow before me, I am the one who sticks closer than any brother in this world. And you need to know that about me, man or woman, whoever you are. Christ is. You know, there's a scripture in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 2, that says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. I used to ask myself, what, what joy was beyond the cross? I think the answer is the bliss that he knew would be there of perfect fellowship with a forgiven, renewed people of faith in his church who would meet him in worship and in prayer and in trust beyond the cross. Once they were his, there would be a fellowship that would be fantastic 
with him as its author. And he would not be the stalwart, strong cross. You know, there's that the city in South America, I guess it's Rio de Janeiro, where is that huge uh, statue of Christ, Christ the Redeemer, I think it's called, up on the mountain. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Rio, but you can see pictures of this. It, you can see it for miles. This enormous concrete Jesus with his arms out like this up on that mountain. Rio is a city, a sin city incorporated, by the way, if you didn't know. And yet, on a mountain overlooking Rio is Christ holding his arms out over a sin-sick people. And, you know, he's not just a concrete statue, is what he's telling us here. He wants to be in, in a blissful, perfect fellowship as the best friend any believer could possibly imagine knowing. He is gentle, lowly, hospitable, welcoming. Remember his parable, the, the well-known parable of the prodigal son? It's only found in Luke 15. You remember that story. It's an unforgettable story. How the, the prodigal said, I'm done with this farm. I'm done with orders from dad. Half of it's going to be mine someday. Give it to me now and I'm out of here. Well, amazingly, the dad gave it to him. Half of all he owned. The other half being reserved for the older son. And you know, that guy went out, wasted it all, gambled it all away. And uh, he was down to nothing, ready to eat pig food. And uh, he finally said, gee, I, I really, you know, scotched the deal I had with dad. And there's nothing left of what I would have got. But maybe if I crawl and beg, dad would give me a little corner, at least a place to sleep out of the rain. So he got ready, came back. The main issue of the story was the father was, hadn't forgotten about him, not hardly. The father was watching the road every day. The father, as a dignified Jewish man, saw his son, and it's, the text says he ran to greet his son. I think that's important. Dignified Jewish wealthy men didn't run. They stood around in, on their dignity. And the son thought, well, the only way I could approach somebody as dignified and stalwart and proud as my dad would be say, Dad, I beg you, I've made a mess. Please, could I have a dirty corner of the barn and an old horse blanket to sleep on at night and maybe some dry crust? He didn't even get that out of his mouth, did he? Because his dad was pulling him up. Look up Rembrandt's painting of the, the return of the prodigal. It's, it's amazing. It's eloquent. He was pulling his son up, hugging him, calling out, get the feast ready, get a royal robe, get the son's inheritance ring for his hand. My son is back. I want to tell you that story of the prodigal describes Jesus Christ, ready to welcome you back from wherever you've been in departure from fellowship with him. Unconditional acceptance. Arms wide open. Not, you know, what did he deserve? He deserved first a lecture from dad, right? That's what he would have gotten from most of us. You dirty worm, you wasted half of my estate. Why should I do anything? For Didn't happen. Arms wide. Bear hug. My son is back. You understand that's how Jesus Christ stands ready to welcome you every day that you live as a Christian believer. 
saved by God's grace, saved by the righteousness of a holy Savior on a cross for you. He's ready, gentle, lowly, welcoming. What a unique Savior he really is. Thirdly today, and quickly, as I look at this text, I'm assuming and hoping that you do recognize a need in yourself that only Christ can satisfy, but I don't know your heart. You might have been a lifetime member of this church. And maybe you can't even say, I know that I'm saved by the righteousness of Jesus. Well, in the last place here, I'm asking the question, are you willing to wear Christ's easy yoke? Now, what in the world is that about? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble, and you'll find rest for your soul. You think of a yoke, certainly in Lancaster County, you've seen somewhere an ox yoke hanging up in a barn wall or someplace, heavy piece of wood that binds two oxen together so that they pull not separately but together and accomplish work. So you might think this is saying, Jesus is saying, well, okay, uh, put on half of the yoke and I'll wear the other half, and that'll mean that each of us carries 50% of the life of Christian faith. I'll do 50% of the work and you do 50%. You hear sermons that imply that's what's being said. I think that is just as wrong as anything could be. Jesus Christ by himself did all the heavy lifting needed for our justification. When he says, take my yoke, he's not asking you to bear a heavy burden as you're already bearing the burden before you come to him. And it says in the scripture that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. The heavy lifting's done. Done at the cross. But what he's inviting now is an intimate walk of relationship and companionship. His yoke that we would walk in by daily coming to him for forgiveness and strength and insight and blessing is liberating, not laborious. I like what one writer said, the yoke of Christ is no more a burden to the Christian than feathers are to a bird. You got it right, brother. No more of a burden to the Christian than feathers are to a bird. Once I read of a Wycliffe Bible translator in South America who was doing what those translators do, living with a tribe, learning their dialect, taking it, trying to reduce the Bible, the New Testament, into uh, language that these people could read and have the Word of God. And the, the translator was stuck, as he reported, with coming up with just the right word in this Indian language for faith. Very important word. You've got to get that word right. And the native tribe he lived among was one that built suspension bridges across jungle rivers. And these bridges were looking like fragile spider webs of rope and bamboo, you know, kind of things that you look at and think, boy, I don't think I want to go across that. And one day the missionary was at one of these bridges with some of the native people, and, and uh, they had crossed, and he was supposed to cross, and he was hesitating. And a village man called out a single word that when he asked for a translation, it meant, the one word meant this, launch yourself upon it, you can rest your weight on it. And the missionary thought, tell me that word, because I've got to write that down. That's the word for faith. Launch yourself on it. 
lean your weight totally on it because you can trust it. With that in mind, in the name of Jesus Christ, I bid you all today to come to Christ. Come to him, first of all, to find rest for your soul, to find reconciliation and peace with God through the justifying work that he did there so that you can call yourself a Christian, Christ's man, Christ's woman, the Christ people. That's where it first came from, as we were called Christians in the first century. Jesus went to that cross for you, and he said, come and and get rest for your soul. He didn't say, get all your questions answered and then come. He didn't say, get all your relational messes cleaned up and then come. Get all your problems figured out and then come. No, he didn't do any of that. He said, come to me now. Come to me without delay. Come to me as you are. Come and dwell close to me as your most trusted friend from this day forward. And this same Lord Jesus Christ said elsewhere in John 6, He that comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. Come to Christ. Whether it means coming for the very first time in your life or coming in the 1,042nd time, for daily strength, daily peace, daily sustenance with the greatest friend the world has ever known who is gentle and lowly and will give rest to every soul. Thanks God to God. Father, what a wonderful appeal. I still remember what it felt like at eight years of age. I didn't understand theology. I wasn't a preacher. But I saw the phrase, come to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy. I don't know how I thought I was heavy laden at age eight, Lord. But I was. Thank you for not only being the Lord and Savior of all who come, but of being the greatest friend and companion and counselor that we could possibly know. We praise your great name through Jesus Christ. Amen.